So that is our series right now that we're entitling The Big God Story. And today we're going to take a look at a people and a prophecy. Just before that, you know, the last number of weeks here, I've been repping the Cowboys and been a little bit vocal about that. And you probably know that they went down in defeat last week. And a number of you checked in and texted me. Thank you for, for that. And I just want to let you know, I took it really well. Okay. I just think you need to know that. In fact, somebody, you know, had the phone running here. Um, you got some video. Check this out. So here, you know, it's kind of the uh, game coming to its conclusion. And, and I think, you know, it's uh, took it pretty well. Yeah, so much better than last year. Um, <laughs> making progress, making progress. Um, here's, here's what we're doing in this series. We are trying to get some handles on the Bible that help us to understand wherever we might be in the Bible, where do I get my bearing? Where is this going? What does this mean? How does this relate? Because sometimes it can seem like there's all kinds of disconnected stories and information. There's some wild stuff in there as well. What does it all mean? And so here's where we began. In the first week, we said that in the beginning, God created everything. A good God created a good world. And we understand who did it and we understand why he did it. And at the pinnacle and really the ultimate purpose of his creation was to share his love with humanity. And that's how it all began. But also we looked at it the following week. If you look around this world, you say, well, is this a good world that God created? Not exactly. Because something went wrong. And God gave to mankind that opportunity to make a choice. And the love always entails a choice. And so one day, there was a choice to go outside of God's direction. And the results of that have been catastrophic. And so what does God do on the other side of that? Does God just walk away from that and start over or just, you know, see that as some sort of failed attempt to share his love with people like us? But God didn't walk away. And right on the other side of that, God goes into his creation and an animal dies, an innocent animal, and its skin is taken to cover the shame and the guilt of the people that walked away from God and chose not to follow God. And then God goes to work to redeem and to restore and he comes ultimately to a man named Abraham at a time in this world that is described as the intention of everybody's heart was very dark and far from God. And he says, look at the night sky. And I'm going to create a people through you. Going to begin with you. Why him? No other reason than God is going to work to redeem and to restore what was broken and what was lost. And he says, look at the stars in the sky, and one day you are going to have more descendants than you see stars in that sky. And then things begin to unfold. Last week, we looked at all the sacrifices in this nation called Israel and how they ultimately pointed to a sacrifice that Jesus came to make. And so today, that really brings us to a place where we're going to condense really of what we would call the Old Testament and see how we have been talking about this from the beginning, that there is one storyline through all of the Bible, and that God has been at work in one way, and there's like this thin red line of God's redemption that runs through all of it, 
and from beginning to end. It is God's rescue, God's redemption, God reaching down to people like us and inviting us in. If you follow Jesus, I hope today that what we look at strengthens your faith. If you've not entertained that idea about God or relationship with God or you've had a bad experience with that, I hope that you see the heart of God on full display, inviting you to come to him. But let's be honest, the Bible can be a little bit confusing at different times. And to prove that point today, I want to do a little bit of a quiz as we jump into this. And so what I'm going to do in a moment, I'm going to put a line up here one at a time. And I'm going to ask you and take you, uh, have you take a quiz by show of hands here. Is it from the Bible or is it a lyric from a Taylor Swift song? So let's see how many Swifties um, we have here. Um, so here you go. Here's the first one. The Bible or Taylor Swift? Where we stood was holy ground. How many people think that is from the Bible? How many people think that's Taylor Swift? That's Taylor Swift right there. So one for the Swifties. Um, here's another one. Um, they can mock me in my songs. How many say that's the Bible? How many people say that's Taylor Swift? You're wrong. That's from the Bible there. Uh, how about this one? I'll fight their doubts and give you faith. How many people say that's the Bible? How many people say that's Taylor Swift? That's Taylor Swift. Um, he pierced me with arrows. How many people would say that's the Bible? How many people think that's Taylor Swift? That's the Bible. So yeah, it can be a little bit confusing um, to understand when there's a whole bunch of things in there that seem like they could be a little bit random. So here's where I want to start today. I want to start with Jesus. And at a high level, you know, we're going to talk about that at the beginning, but then we're going to get into some weeds that I think help us to understand this. That when it comes to the arena of faith, I believe that we are to have a blind love for people. Who should we love? We should love everybody. I mean, we agree with everything, but we should love everybody. But I also believe our faith is not blind. It is not just a leap into the dark of, well, there's just a bunch of spiritual stuff and you're just going to have to take it, you know, at face value. That there is an aspect to our faith that is tied not just to ideas and philosophies and words, but it is tied to something that is real and something that is true and something that our faith can stand on. Not as a blind leap into the dark, but something that is based in reality. Now, I don't know about your experience, you know, your journey um, with God. If you've been around uh, Washington Heights for any length of time, you might have heard me you know, talk from time to time about growing up. And, you know, we went to church every week. In fact, I like to say that when I was a kid, I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church all the time. And as far as I was concerned, that was a problem. It was not a great experience for me. And there was actually a time, because you might assume, well, if you grew up in church and that's why you do what you do. But there's a season in my life where I just walked away from it. Finally, I could make my own choice. And I thought, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ideas out there. Why believe that versus all the different ideas that exist in this world? You know, a lot of people believe a lot of different things. How can we know that any one thing is more true than any other? But to be honest with you, something beneath that decision sounds more like this. I just didn't want anybody telling me what to do. And I wanted to make my own decisions and do my own thing and just, you know, live my own life. So what is it that ultimately 
you know, brought you back in the direction of God. And I want to share a little bit of that with you today. Because it was a sense that the belief in Jesus is good and is right and deserves my trust and my allegiance, not because it's a better philosophy or system than others, but because it is true. And so let's see if we can unpack that together. Here's where I want to start in the book of Luke, and this is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, me as Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus helps us understand a couple of things here. Um, there are in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, three different sections in the Jewish mindset. First is the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. And then there's the prophets. And you probably notice that there's large sections of prophecies in the Old Testament. They would put history in there as well. And then there's the Psalms, what is often referred to as wisdom literature. Reads a little bit more like poetry to us. And again, we can't read the Bible like a novel that we just you know, go through from beginning to end. We've got to understand that there are different types of um, literature there that all communicate something specific. But do you notice what Jesus is saying? All of that, what we would call the Old Testament, must be fulfilled in him. That it was all like a giant pointing arrow saying, he's coming. And everything that God communicated there was ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the way that we pictured it last week already. And just to kind of give us this idea again, what is the theme of the Old Testament? A Savior's coming. Everything's pointing to Jesus. What is the theme in the New Testament? Looking back, saying a Savior has come. What is the centerpiece of that whole story? It's Jesus. It's his life. It's his death. It's his resurrection. So there's one story, really, in the Bible. And it unfolds in a number of different chapters in a number of different ways, but it is ultimately telling one story. And in the Old Testament alone, there are some 300 very specific prophecies about the one who was coming. And people debate sometimes, well, was that a prophecy? Was it not? There's at least 300. And some of them are very specific and they it contain details that are out of the control of the person who would say, you know what? I'm going to know what those 300 are and I'm going to fulfill them all in my own understanding and make them happen. But you can't fulfill the place in which you're born. And if your death is out of your hands and is done by others, you don't know how that's going to happen. And they point ultimately to Jesus. So what are we saying at the beginning of this at the highest level? The theme of the entire Bible is Jesus. And we learn this in the Christmas story, the name of Jesus. What does it mean? The Lord saves. What has God been doing from the time he created everything and made it good? When people decided not to follow God and the results of that were catastrophic and so much was broken, the world was broken, we are broken. God has been at work redeeming and restoring. So he comes to a man named Abram and says, I'm going to create a nation through you. And ultimately through that nation is going to come one who is going to fulfill all that God has intended to do so that people could be made right with a holy God. There was a people, there was a promise, and along the way, there were all kinds of predictions about how that would play out. 
So let me show you one example of what that looks like, which I think lends credibility that our faith in the Jesus of the Bible is not in a great philosophy. It's in something that is true. So let's jump first into the book of Matthew in the New Testament and begin with Jesus on the cross. And it's important, I think, that we understand that Matthew is the one writing this. Matthew, if you know anything about his story, he would be somebody that we would put in the category of not a good guy. This is somebody that if we're talking about God liking good people, he is off limits. And here's why. When we meet Matthew, he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were hired and worked for the occupying Roman Empire, and they extorted money out of their own people and sent it so that Caesar's armies could grow stronger. So in our context, it might be somebody working for ISIS who takes money from people here and sends it to ISIS so they could do more of what it is that they do. And Matthew is one of those guys. And one day, Jesus comes along and invites him and says, follow me. And Matthew does. And now, three years later, here he is as one of the eyewitness accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Why would Matthew include details like that? Because this is a true story. This is not a once upon a time story. It's something that actually happened in space and time. And somebody that we might put in the category of a really bad person, of a sinner, is somebody who is now following Jesus. And let me tell you, if you've ever put yourself in the category of being off limits, of being somebody that God would not ever entertain the idea of letting you come close, Matthew is your guy. And really, Matthew is our guy. Because in one respect, that is all of us. And here he is in that moment giving us detail. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. And maybe you've heard those words before. Translated, it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Little detail here. Jesus is speaking and he combines two languages. One of them is ancient Hebrew. The other is Aramaic. Bible actually contains three languages. There's a lot of Hebrew, there's a lot of Greek, and there's a little bit of Aramaic. What language did Jesus speak when he was here? Aramaic was the language of the day. And when Jesus speaks this, it looks for all the world like this is somebody who is confused about why they are where they are and somebody who does not want to be where they are. But that's not the case at all with Jesus because here's what we know. Shortly before this moment, before the cross, Jesus was in the garden praying. And he knew what was coming. And he prays this prayer saying, if there is any other way other than the cross that's in the future, let this cup pass away from me. Which means, let's not go that route. But then he ends with, but your will be done. And so Jesus knew what was coming. He's not confused about why he's on the cross. Why would he say these words? Because what he's doing in this moment in time And remember his statement about fulfillment. He's connecting a number of dots that help us to understand that God has been at work doing one thing, telling one story at work in one primary way from the very beginning. And it has everything to do even with all of us here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he say that when he's not confused? Well, let's take a look at something that somebody else wrote, a guy named David. These words were written 1,000 years before Jesus. 
And Jesus knows these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And do you see what Jesus is doing? Pointing back to what was said so long ago. All those things that were pointing in the direction that there is one coming. And now in Jesus' moment of being nailed to a cross, he says, the words that look back, that help us to understand this has been God's purpose and plan from the very beginning. And he said all along it was going to happen, and now Jesus is saying, and it's happening right now in his death. It was pointed to a thousand years before Jesus came. And this is why he came. And you know what? What Jesus was doing really opened the door to anyone and everyone who would come to him and put their hope and trust in him. It has everything to do with you. This has been the purpose and the plan from the very start. It's not the only statement back in the book of Matthew. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, and so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Right? These are the statements of other people. Matthew's there writing this stuff down for us. Look at what was said a thousand years before Jesus came. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. The very thing said so long ago happening in that moment in Jesus' life. Back in the book of Matthew, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Casting lots is kind of like rolling dice. Um, here's what it said a thousand years before Jesus. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's as if God is trying to help us see the one storyline that has been unfolding from the very beginning. A good and great God made it all good. It got broken, including us. And now God has gone to work to redeem. And the centerpiece of all of that is not just a philosophy. It's not just words. It's an actual event that plays out in the life of Jesus. Now, if you're a bit of a skeptic, and I'll admit, I can be a skeptic in different ways. If you were a skeptic, you might say, well, how do we know that things weren't massaged, the words weren't changed to fit the narrative, that people would even go back in time to change the words in the story so that it looks like this is something that connected over such a span of time? And, you know, let's recognize the Bible is a very unique book. It's not actually one book, it's 66 books written over the span of 1,500 years by over 40 authors on three different continents. That tells one story. But how do we know that people didn't change things along the way because they just wanted it to look like all of this was connected, like all of this had been predicted? 
in the way that it plays out. Well, that would be a great argument, but let me tell you why I think it doesn't hold a lot of water. Here's Psalm 22 again. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And if you know anything about crucifixion, you know that they drive nails through the wrist area and through the feet. And we think, well, you know, we've seen crosses for our whole lives. They've been around a long time. These words, again, written a thousand years before Jesus, they were written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Didn't even exist yet. And so how do you write about something that doesn't even exist? Thousand years, could you imagine being in the Roman Empire and writing about people walking around with little devices that they could call other people and text other people? It's kind of like a leap like that over that kind of span of time. And death by crucifixion wasn't even in existence when that was written. And you might say, but again, how do we know that Psalm 22, you know, wasn't altered to make it look that way? They just go back and just kind of change it a little bit. And for a long time, the oldest manuscripts that we had of Psalm 22 were from 900 AD. Now that's three times longer than America has been a country. That's a long time. How do we know that in that time, 900 years from the time Jesus was here until the oldest manuscript that we had, that's a lot of time for people to change things and move it around and make it look really good, but how do we know? And let me tell you why I think we can have great confidence that these words are right. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy northwest of the Dead Sea was watching over a flock of sheep in this area and threw a rock, as boys are prone to do, into the mouth of that cave. And when he threw the rock into the cave, he heard a breaking sound. And so he was curious because what's in there that could be broken. And he went up into that cave and he found a bunch of scrolls. We know these scrolls as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they lend some credibility to this whole idea of whether or not we can trust those words. Were they said a thousand years before Jesus was here? Did somebody massage it and change it? This is what the Dead Sea Scrolls look like laid out and they've been put on display in a number of places. Every book in the Old Testament, a portion of it is in the Dead Sea Scrolls with one exception, the book of Esther. Psalm 22 is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And do you know what it says? He pierced my hands and my feet. Nothing has been altered. You say, well, how do we know though? You know, where does it fit into the time span? The Dead Sea Scrolls are dated to 300 BC. 300 years before Jesus was born. And it says the very thing that we will read in our Bibles. So when Jesus spoke those words, it was God connecting the dots over huge spans of time, saying this is part of that one story and in fact his coming and his life and his death and his resurrection are the centerpiece of the story that God has been unfolding from the very beginning. And that story involves you. And that story invites you to come. 
What did God do after he made it all good and it was all ruined? He went to work to redeem and to restore. And so he created a nation and put all kinds of indicators of what would ultimately come to pass. And Jesus said one day, all the things that were predicted about him would be fulfilled. Psalm 22 also talks about the future. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. It's talking about future tense there. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about what's coming in the future, in eternity. Because God's story is really a beginning, a middle that we're in right now. And then there's a new beginning and one that can be experienced with God for all time. But what are we saying ultimately about all of this? What does it help us to understand? It's always been about Jesus. And so wherever we might be in the story, as we lean into God's word, the Bible, that's ultimately what everything points to. And the fact that it's always been about Jesus tells us that the heart of God has always been reaching to broken people like us. And if you've walked with him, I hope, that the reality of our faith being tied to an event strengthens your faith. And if you've never entertained the idea that there's a God who knows you and has been at work from the very beginning and all that is needed for you to belong to him has been accomplished by Jesus in your place, I hope you come to know that because you were made by him and for him. And when we put our hope and trust in him, we begin a relationship with him that never ends. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about the story of Jesus. And because of what Jesus came to do, it's also always been about you. Would you bow your heads together with me as I pray? God, thank you for your great love, which even is the motive behind everything that there is. You just long to share that. And God, the truth about us is that we miss the mark. We don't live up to our own standards, much less your holy standard. But thank you for who you are and what you have done. God, that you went to work to redeem, to restore, to make broken people right with a holy God. And God, I pray that we would more and more lean into your word, your truth. And thank you that we can have a faith that, that stands on more than great teaching, great ideas, great philosophy, all that comes with it as well. But it is centered on an event. It is centered on you, Jesus, and all that you came to accomplish on our behalf. Thank you for connecting the dots in the story for us so that we can see, God, that you've been at work in one way from the very beginning. May our hope and trust in you only grow. Help us to walk with you. And God, if we've never stepped across that line of faith, maybe even today's the day to do that, to recognize that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we ask you, God, to lead us and guide us as only you can. May we discover more of who you are and the many ways that we can respond to the grace and the goodness that we've been given. And we ask and pray 
all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.